Six years of science. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For the past six years, Dr. Thomas Zerbukin has led NASA's science division. From the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope to landing a robot on Mars, Dr. Z has been at the helm for some of NASA's most complex and critical science missions. At the end of this year, he's leaving the agency. We'll speak with Dr. Z about his six years leading NASA science and what's ahead for the agency's science mission directorate. Then, earlier this year, a group of scientists recommended NASA look at Uranus. The decadal survey outlined reasons why the agency should send a mission to the gas giant. We'll revisit a conversation with planetary scientist Paul Byrne about why that's exciting and important. Space science, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Before we get to the show, I want to recognize the impacts of Hurricane Ian. Central Florida continues to deal with the damage, and residents are recovering from record-breaking rainfall and flooding in the area. My colleagues at 90.7 WMFE News are providing critical reporting on these efforts, and you can find that continued reporting at wmfe.org storms. And last week on the show, we discussed NASA's efforts to track climate change, which contributes to the frequency and severity of storms like Ian. And in a future episode, we'll explore how space-based tools are helping track these storms and help keep people safe. Stay listening. And one final note on Ian. Many of our listeners reached out to me on Twitter, worried about me and my colleagues, and checking in on our safety. For that, I truly appreciate you all. Okay, on to the show. Dr. Thomas Zerbukin is NASA's Associate Administrator of the Science Mission Directorate. He's in charge of all things science at NASA, from last week's efforts to knock an asteroid off course to deploying the James Webb Space Telescope. He's leaving NASA at the end of this year, but before he goes, he joins us to talk about his six-year tenure as NASA's chief scientist. There have been quite a few amazing science missions that have happened during your tenure. I'm wondering if there's one that stands out as, as one of your favorite. Well, look, I mean, it's very hard to uh, talk about the last six years and not to immediately think of the James Webb Space Telescope and also the Mars Perseverance, right? You know, both of these were are really, really big missions, uh, missions that if you want, we struggled with uh, as an agency. Uh, you remember, of course, that the, the mission ahead of Perseverance uh, Curiosity, we actually missed the launch window. I had to wait for two years, uh, 26 months, to uh, to find the next uh, Mars window. So we're really proud that uh, we're on track. Uh, and, you know, we, we launched both of these. Uh, and, you know, with uh, what a success on both. Uh, one, collecting samples right now that we're going to uh, bring back uh, with missions that are launching later this decade. And the other one, uh, uh, you know, uh, out there kind of discovering the universe in new ways. But that would be, you know, if it's just those two, I would totally understate kind of the excitement I have, for example, about the series of Earth science missions that are out there looking at the Earth in a new way, whether it's uh, ice cover, uh, sea level rise, or also uh, uh, space station-based, uh, recently launched hyperspectral imager that is already out there discovering methane plumes uh, that uh, in, in many areas. Right? It's just absolutely cool that we can take 
eyes from the sky to protect and help humans on Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that was a hard question, so thank you for fielding that one. <laughs> but you you did mention uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, um, and as you alluded to, that that was a delayed mission. It was very complex. Um, I think a lot of people here on Earth applauded it once it, it did leave this planet. What was the moment for you when you said, you know, mission accomplished, JWST is, is where it needs to be? Well, I think it really is when we had the whole uh, optics aligned and uh, the instruments were delivering at spec. So it's just a few weeks before the first images actually came out. I basically felt we were there. Uh, there's so many steps that had to work, uh, both on, you know, frankly, getting it built. Uh, many people have a hard time understanding how hard it is uh, to work on a $10 billion project where everything has to be perfect. Literally, that's what the James Webb Space Telescope is. And of course, we struggled. I mean, frankly, when I came in, immediately, uh, I had to run it through a review because we had made so many mistakes. Frankly, there was a big question in the community, including with me, whether or not we could actually be successful at it. And, you know, this team really came together and uh, delivered uh, not only the mission into space, but uh, science that's already, you know, changing the way we look at the universe. So, so just uh, so exciting for that. Mm -hmm. Did you feel an exceeding amount of pressure with, with that particular mission? I mean, it seemed like all eyes were on this as an, a very expensive mission. And, it, and as you said, everything had to be right. That had to have been a lot of pressure on you and your team. Whenever there's a big issue like this, a big mission or a big transition of a mission, whether it's a launch or a deployment, yes, there's a lot of pressure, right? Kind of, uh, you realize it that, uh, you know, perhaps you notice even some sleep pattern changes because, you know, of course, I worry about in these missions, kind of, I know that, and frankly, be, a, a night before the James Webb Space Telescope launch, I actually on camera practice both speeches, the speech that you heard, which is easy to give, right? Thank the team and great, now let's get started. You know, a gift to humanity, you know, on Christmas Day. So it's all, so that speech is easy to give. The other one is much harder, right? Which is, uh, imagine it did not work, the launch did not work. And how would we handle that, right? So, so yes, the pressure is there, but, uh, you know, like all of us, uh, you realize that uh, kind of great things are not done by individuals, and that includes me, right? It's really... Uh, the recognition that teams uh, are uh, what changes history. And so so for me, uh, you know, kind of learning to trust the team and kind of feeling carried by the tree team is certainly one of the things I learned also. Mm -hmm. What did you do with that speech? Did you ceremoniously uh, tread it, throw it in the trash <laughs> when, when it was a mission success? Yeah, I, I've had a habit in my uh, uh, career here to kind of t tear up speeches that I don't need. So I did tear it up also. So I had a, a really nice speech written down and I was so glad to tear it up and throw it away. I think uh, there's one uh, time where I actually tore it up in front of camera, I think when we landed on Mars with uh, Perseverance. <laughs> but I've done that every time. I've just loved that uh, sound and the relief of kind of tearing up the speech you never wanted to give. Mm -hmm. I, I want to stick with JWST for a bit, Dr. Z, because it is beaming back incredible data for scientists, but I can't help but see its impact on the general public. Um, I'm wondering your thoughts on just seeing this, these images in the mainstream media and so much excitement with the general public and, and how that might build into JWST's lasting legacy. What does that mean to you? Look, I mean, I, I think science 
and exploring nature, our beautiful nature is just one of those deeply human things. You go hang out with a child, they get it, right? They point out the beauty that they see, whether it's the night sky, whether it's the sea, whether it's the forest that they see. And and I just absolutely love that, that kind of almost childlike admiration and uh, you know, excitement uh, is shared by humans around the planet. I've, I've, I was in Paris last week. Uh, uh, I was in uh, uh, elsewhere, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was in India uh, before, right? Kind of these images are looked at everywhere. And I just love that uh, uh, as a team kind of uh, with NASA and uh, the many individuals at other space agencies and companies and so forth, we can, in fact, kind of get that excitement from individuals uh, uh, all around. That is what we're ultimately about, right? That inspiration and that excitement, also that hope that kind of shows that, hey, we can do amazing things together if we put our minds to it. That, of course, applies to many projects well beyond NASA. Mm -hmm. And that's a good segue to my next question is because science as a whole has long grappled with with diversity and inclusion. how is NASA, the agency, working to make space science a place for all people to be a part of so that everyone can can take part in that discovery that you described? So I think first we have to recognize and uh, that we are in a place right now where there are talented individuals in engineering and science discipline and, and in other uh, adjacent disciplines with many different backgrounds, uh, with both male and female, colleagues of color that are educated. And it's up to us to create uh, systems and processes that allow them equal chance to kind of get into the leadership jobs that are there. So if you looked at our leadership team at NASA uh, in science, uh, you would recognize that uh, between 45 and 50% uh, of all of our uh, colleagues uh, in leadership positions are female. And that's not because we ever chose the second best person, right? It's just because uh, we created kind of a fair uh, process to select those. I believe that's absolutely essential to keep doing that and, and not to give up. And it's not just about gender, uh, our colleagues of uh, color. It's also uh, people who grew up or are growing up in uh, you know impoverished areas, just like I have, right? Kind of recognize that they can have opportunities to participate in this. If we don't do that, I think we massively undersell and under-deliver on what we can uh, in our science programs. I think it's absolutely critical that uh, science is for everything, but as science is also done by everybody. Uh, so science is for everybody, and science is also done uh, by everybody. I think that's absolutely critical that we do that. It's, it's, uh, if we're not doing that, science is something that people do that have look a specific way, have a specific education, and nobody else should care about it. And we're in a world where science just matters enormously. So it's critical that we recognize that. And finally, Dr. Z, um, the search is underway for the next person to to take your job. Um, what advice do you have to give to them? And, and where do you want to see the NASA sciences go um, after you're gone? So first of all, uh, whoever joins, you know, should just be extremely excited and proud to joining a team that is highly functional and and a team that is very used to executing at the highest level. So 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 kind of take advantage of that team, I would uh, tell whoever comes in next and, uh, you know, make sure uh, you get them, uh, you know, you unify that team towards the next uh, uh, big goals. 
I kind of, when I joined NASA, somebody asked me, what's your strategy? I basically, I said, the first strategy is to build the right, the best team. Uh, the next strategy I said is to make sure that every mission that we're doing, we're executing on. So in other words, we focus and de deliver uh, the mission on cost, on schedule, and make sure that we gain trust in the public eye. And then the third one is really to, to, to drive towards new high grounds. Uh, kind of in, in my case, that was um, our sample return that I really wanted to start, kind of a Europa mission. Uh, it was about, uh, you know, kind of the Earth System Observatory, the next generation kind of Earth Observatory. It's, it's all these things. So I would recommend that somebody who comes in kind of focuses on what the next high ground is. Surely it will be an exoplanet observer, uh, which is kind of the next generation big uh, telescope looking for life elsewhere, as well as other missions that, uh, frankly, I cannot have not thought about it. But for me, it's really driving towards the next high ground and doing so as a team, both uh, within the U.S. and internationally. That was Dr. Thomas Zerbukin, NASA's Associate Administrator of the Science Mission Directorate. Last week, we spoke about NASA's efforts to knock an asteroid off course. Listen to our conversation with Dr. Z. That's in your podcast apps, or you can visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Coming up, a mission to Uranus, why scientists want to send a spacecraft to the gas giant. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. More than a billion and a half miles from Earth. That's where scientists want NASA to send a spacecraft in the next decade. The target of this mission is Uranus, a mysterious planet that saw its last Earthly visitors more than 30 years ago. Of all the places in the solar system to visit, why Uranus? Well, to answer that question, we revisit a conversation from April 26 with Paul Byrne. He's a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul Byrne, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brendan. Good talking with you. A few of the priorities that the Decadal identified for NASA um, was a mission to, to Uranus. And, and, and help me settle settle this. Is it Uranus, Uranus? How do, how do you pronounce it? So, <laughs> so We're going to be talking about it for 40 years. Uh, you bet, right? So so when it was first discovered, it was called George. Uh, but then it was it was, it was was called... Uh, so Uranus, 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 there's any number of ways. I think it's a Greek word originally. Um, but I am on record on Twitter as saying that however one chooses to say it, Lean into the jokes now, because like you say, we're going to have 40 years ahead of us, right, of this, of this science. So just get out of our system now. So by the time this thing launches in the early 2030s, we've kind of got most of it out of our system. So we can actually focus on the science of this, of this really weird and really interesting planet that we know almost nothing about. So, so th this is a big deal. Um, in fact, we know so little about Uranus. Uh, and Neptune, the so-called ice giants. Now, whether it's the right phrase, there's this whole other related conversation. But the bottom line is that we have sent big flagship orbiters to Jupiter, which was NASA's Galileo mission, to Saturn, which is NASA's Cassini mission. We've had flagship missions to Mars. We've had some terrific missions throughout the solar system. We've even gone out to Pluto and beyond. 
But we've only ever been to Uranus and Neptune once with a flyby, and that was the Voyager 2 spacecraft. Voyager 2 did this grand tour of the solar system to Jupiter-Saturn, and then it flew past Uranus in 86 and flew past Neptune in 89. And over the course of several hours, we got some images of the inbound and outbound phases of this, these flybys. But that was it. That's it. We have really rudimentary understanding of these worlds. Now, we can take some measurements of them from, say, the Hubble Space Telescope from Earth. That is nowhere near the same as actually being in orbit around one of these worlds. And really, Uranus has been recognized, and, and Neptune, although it's worth pointing out that Uranus is about 20 times farther from the Sun than Earth is. Neptune is 30 times farther from the Sun than Earth is. So although they're two compelling worlds, Uranus is just a little bit easier to get to. It's not easier to get to, but it's a little less difficult to get to. Um, but but Uranus, a Uranus orbiter flagship was ranked highly in the decadal survey 10 years ago, and it lost out to Mars and Europa. But it was clearly recognized as being an important, substantial thing worthy of scientific exploration. And I'm delighted to see that it has now risen to the top. Now that Mars and Europa have largely been tackled in the last 10 years, and you know we're a long way from finishing those missions, but they're well underway. Uh, it, it makes sense now that it is time, it's Uranus's time for us to start thinking about sending a, a flagship there. Mm -hmm. It's mind-boggling to think, Paul, that it has been that long since a mission has gone there. When we have explored places like, you know, Pluto and, and the Kuiper Belt and all that, why, why haven't we gone there? Um, but with, with this priority, you know, we'll see a mission in, in the coming decades. What, as a planetary scientist and, and as a planetary science community as a whole, what do you all want to find out about Uranus? What what do we not know about it? And, and what questions can this mission possibly answer? Sure. Well, I mean, it's easier to say what we do know about it because it's a much shorter list. Um, so one of the things that <laughs> so one of the things that really interests me, I love solid surface bodies, worlds that have surfaces that have craters, because Uranus is what we call an ice giant. It's it's mainly made of helium and hydrogen. So it has no surface to speak of, at least not one that we can see or access. Um, we actually don't know what the inside of Uranus is made of. It's possible that there could be an Earth-sized rocky world deep inside it under an enormous blanket of thick, gaseous atmosphere. Uh, that's one of the things that this, this kind of mission would be able to tell, to, to, to test that. But Uranus has a natural ring system, and it has a natural system of satellites, of icy satellites. Titania, Umbrion, Ariel, uh, a really weird one called Miranda, which looks a bit like a jigsaw puzzle put together wrong. I mean, re re really basic stuff like, why does it look weird? And for those moons, it's worth pointing out, we only know what about half of them look like, like as in half of each moon, the bit that was seen by Voyager 2 during its flyby. We don't know what the other half looks like. So the benefit of studying Uranus is that it, well, there's a whole pile of reasons, but one of them is that it, because it has rings and because it has moons and because it's got some funky stuff, it's got an atmosphere, the thermal structure of which you don't understand. The whole planetary system, by the way, is on its side. Its axial tilt is 98 degrees, so its pole sort of points towards the sun. We don't know why that is. We suspect it may be an early, a giant impact very early on in its life. But there's some really basic fundamental stuff like what's the inside made of? What do the moons look like? How do the rings form? I mean, really basic stuff. The other thing too, uh, and I should say, one of, the, one of the benefits of that approach is that because there are people who study these different things in the community, this is going to have a far-reaching set of interests. You're going to have people who study rings getting involved, people who study isosatellites like me, people who study planetary atmospheres, planetary interiors. This mission, much like Cassini and Galileo, will have something for a huge number of people in the community. So that's also of real value because you're, you're bringing disparate people together and, and, and that's always going to be more than the sum of its parts. There's another really compelling reason for studying Uranus, which is that when we look to other planetary systems, 
Uranus is the type of world we're finding more than any other, at least so far. There's definitely a bias in how we detect these so-called extrasolar or exoplanets. But what we realize is that there certainly seems to be a lot of Uranus-sized worlds. And it may be that Uranus is a kind of, not perhaps the default, but a standard kind of world. You know, we have one, maybe two in the system, in our system, Uranus and Neptune. But it might be a very common type of world generally. And if that's the case, studying Uranus is going to give us a great deal of information about these worlds generally. And of course, we are, we are millennia, if ever, from visiting other ice giants and other planetary systems. They're so far away. So this is the only one, or it and Neptune, or the only two of their kind that we're going to be able to get to in any foreseeable future. I should point out, by the way, the Decadal Survey ranked Neptune science as equally compelling as Uranus science. And the only reason the Uranus flagship was ranked over a Neptune flagship was simply because we can get to Neptune, we can get to Uranus faster than we can get to Neptune and with less technology development. What, what would this mission to, to Uranus look like? So there are definitely part of the decadal process for planetary is that there's a series of studies conducted in which uh, people get together and, and, and design a spacecraft mission so that it can be costed. Because it turns out that you can do most things in the solar system. Whether you can do them with the resources available is a different question. And so it's very important to have these studies done beforehand and during the decadal survey process while the report is being written. Because we want to know, for example, how much will it cost to go to Neptune versus Uranus? That's one of the bases by which the steering committee of the decadal made the decision to prioritize Uranus. So these studies are very important. So yeah, there is information. Um, but the other point, an important aspect of the decadal is that it tries not to be overly prescriptive because there could be some new technology development or some new compelling science or new, some new compelling instrument that's developed that might play some role in how we would actually implement this mission. So the idea of the study in the, and all these studies are publicly available as appendices to the, to the new report, which is publicly accessible, uh, which is free, free to read. Um, these studies give some ideas to what it would look like, but they're not designed to be overly prescriptive. It would probably look like the Cassini mission in that it would probably have a similar looking spacecraft. It would be relatively long, uh, cylindrical object with lots of antennae sticking out of it, magnetometer, a huge dish at one end to communicate back to Earth. Uh, radio thermal generators, radioisotopic thermal generators to generate electricity. Of course, it's way too far from the sun for solar panels to work, so this thing's going to have to be nuclear-powered, uh, which is exactly how we did Cassini, how we've done New Horizons to Pluto, how Mars Perseverance and Mars Curiosity rovers are working. We have plenty of experience with that. Um, and the idea, basically, is that this thing would also carry, in addition to the main spacecraft, it would carry a probe. And the reason this is important is because although you can tell an enormous amount of material from or information if you like about the planet from orbit by orbiting it the real way you want to really get information is to deploy something into the planet itself we did this successfully with the galileo probe in the 1990s uh, the cassini mission to saturn carried a probe called huygens which landed on the surface of the biggest icy satellite there called titan so the in, it's envisioned that for this uranus orbiter mission this flagship it would carry in addition to the orbiter it would carry a probe and it would deploy this probe into the atmosphere of Uranus itself. Yes, it would probe Uranus. Again, I, <laughs> get I, the I, jokes I, out I, now. Get the jokes out of our system now, right? 
So this is going to plunge into Uranus, and in doing so, it's going to measure temperature, composition, pressure. It's going to give us information that you cannot get from orbit. That will tell us a great deal of information. And these things, I mean, if it's if the probe into Jupiter is any guide, this thing will last only a few hours. The orbiter, the flagship orbiter, will last presumably at least a decade. We know that that's what Galileo and Cassini did. But this thing will basically orbit for a long time. But the probe will only last a few hours. But in that time, through that one transect through the atmosphere, we will learn more than we can ever learn from orbit of what's inside Uranus. How long would it take for um, a mission like this to actually arrive at, at Uranus? And, 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 and how long until we can get data points that will answer some of those questions? Sure. So you're right. There is no, you know, until and if we develop warp drive, we are beholden to physics. And that means that a trip out to Uranus, so let's say, for example, anytime you go out away from Earth, away from the sun, you're basically climbing uphill. You're fighting the gravity of the sun. You can go really anywhere you want if you have unlimited time, but we don't have unlimited time. We want to see this mission before we die. And also, we don't want to have a spacecraft out there for decades if we can avoid it, because we don't quite know how its propellants will behave or how the electronics will survive. So it's in our interest to get it there as relatively quickly as we possibly can. One of the things that helps the Uranus mission in the next decade, the decade of this, is that Jupiter will be aligned in such a way that it's advantageously positioned to take advantage of, to have what we call a gravity assist that will help the spacecraft get out to Uranus faster. Even with optional or optimal launch windows between, let's say, 2031 and 2038, we're still talking about perhaps as much between 8 and 12 years for the spacecraft to get there. That's just the reality of how far away Uranus is, how much energy it takes to climb uphill away from the sun. We're just going to have to wait a long time. That is the nature of deep space exploration. Voyager 2 spacecraft, if I recall correctly, was launched in 1977, and it flew past Uranus in 1986, nine years later, but it wasn't making any attempt to slow down to be captured into orbit of Uranus. It went right past, and it was a further three years to get out to Neptune. Space is stupid big, and it takes a long time to get stuff through it, uh, that's just the nature of it. So yeah, even if this development, the Decadal Survey calls for this Uranus flagship being starting to be developed in 2024, the, the next possible financial year in which NASA could request funds to do so. Look for, you know, financial year 24 starts October next year. Look for some time in calendar 24 if NASA accepts this recommendation, which I'd be surprised if it didn't. Look for 2024 to be the year that NASA starts to seriously develop plans for finding this thing. But even if it launches the first available launch window in 2031, which gives you a seven-year development time, which is tight but, but doable for something as complicated as this, launching in 2031, we're still probably not going to see any data from this thing until late that decade, early the next decade, possibly 20 years from now. That's, that's just how long this takes. And for the foreseeable future, with, with technology we know and we have on the horizon, there's no way we can expedite that. We've been speaking with Paul Byrne. He's Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Science at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ren, and thanks very much. That conversation aired April 26th. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. And more of our space coverage is available on our website, WMFE.org slash space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.